Cantos 10 to 16. The iron gates of Dis have been thrown open wide. At this point of descent, Virgil had failed, for even the good of the intellect, which it, it would be remembered that he signifies, is not enough to penetrate onwards and through the underworld's deep darkness. An angel, heaven's messenger, had had to descend to the abyss, cross the foul sticks, and put the gorgon and the furies to flight, then throw open the gate, enabling Virgil and Dante to pass through and on with their journey. <coughs> Dante would be emphatic to modern readers. It takes much more than a psychiatrist's couch to heal the soul. Divine grace alone stirs a person's conscience and will. Our own cooperation is required. At this delicate moment in the descent, in order ultimately to ascend, the poem emphasises we need to safeguard our mind from entertaining false teachings. And therefore, the first thing he comes across on entering this are the heretics. And what is it that the companions first see on the desolate plain beyond the gate? Iron tombs of heresy, the grave slabs of which are thrown back to one side, enabling flames and fumes to escape from within. Here the imagery is of iron without and fire within, signifying the obduracy of the mind and a hardening of the will within one's own conceits. The specific heresy mentioned here is that of Epicureanism. It is meant to stand as a symbol of heresy in general. The Epicurean represents a mind and a will with the sole desire in life of having worldly happiness and fulfilment. All human effort is concentrated to this end. It is a view of life that considers knowledge to be simply relative and grounded in the senses. For the Epicurean, there is no such thing as divine influence. Furthermore, such a view considers that the soul is extinguished at death. <coughs> There is no other life but the one we have for threescore years and ten. In other words, Dante is stressing atheism. Perhaps by choosing Epicureanism as his prime example of heresy, Dante is drawing attention to that attitude of mind that makes merry for the day without thought of the morrow not forgetting procrastination of spiritual duties to which we are all called. If this is so, 
then to delay on the spiritual journey may lead imperceptibly to that laxity of mind all too ready to justify our pleasures of the day. Remember, Dante is not only analysing the states of mind and soul which lead to hell, but also the will which too easily consents to the temptation of the moment. You will remember at the beginning I quoted those admirable lines of Lorenzo de' Medici, Quante bella giovinezza che fugge tuttavia, chi vuole essere lieto sia, di doman non c'è certezza. How beautiful is youth that flies away. He who wishes to be happy, let him be, for of tomorrow there is no certainty. On hearing Dante conversing with Virgil with a Tuscan accent, or Italian as we would say today, the proud soul of Farinata degli Uberti rises from the fiery depths of a tomb, and Dante views him standing erect from waist to head. The Florentine chronicler Villani described Farinata as of a large stature virile countenance, strong limbs, grave bearing, military elegance and civil speech. He was wise in counsel and bold, ready and able in feats of arms. Let that be as it may have been. He and his wife Adela Letta in 1283 were condemned for heresy. It is in the manner described by Villani that Farinata addresses Dante. Come avesse l'inferno a gran dispito. 1036. As if he had the whole of hell and great dis disrespect. Ins insisting that the poet answers his questions with precision. Farinata interrogates Dante as to his family background and soon he learns that politically they were on opposite sides. Another shade rises from the depths but this time only visible from the chin upwards as if it was kneeling within the tomb. Dante is confronted with the soul of the father of his friend, Guido de Cavalcanti. This shade describes hell as a blind prison, through which it seems to him that the art of poetry has enabled the poet to wander freely. He asks after his son's well-being, only to slump back into the tomb, waiting for Dante's answer. By the art of poetry, of course, Dante sees that in the light of, the t of how poetry was defined in his own time. Lyrical genius, like Orpheus, taming the underworld, and also his belief that if the poet truly 
responded to his vocation of poet, he would end up becoming a prophet. Farinata takes up the discourse once more. He's only interested in the world of Florentine politics. It is a detail which helps insight into hell's state of mind. Only externalities are of interest. More searching questions have to wait for purgatory and especially paradise. Dante perceives that Farinata remembers the past and can foresee dimly the future, but of the present he has no knowledge and is dependent on news from other souls. It is a curious dialogue and it seems to be based on a passage in Thomas Aquinas Summa Theologica which states precisely what Dante is saying, that the souls of hell are dependent on other souls for news of the present. From our 20th century point of view, we could say at this point, Dante's hell seems to be taking on something of Jean-Paul Sartre's vision of hell in his play, Oui Clos, L'Enfer, c'est les autres. And yet, les autres are required for news of what's happening in the world above. Among other heretics hidden in the tombs, Virgil mentions those of Frederick II of Sicily and Cardinal Ottaviano degli Ubaldini. Then in Canto 11, we have one of those intermezzi, and Virgil discusses with Dante, or describes to Dante, the structure of hell. A pause is taken on the brink of the descent to the seventh circle. While, as Virgil notes, their senses got used to the pit's vile stench. No doubt Dante feels that his reader too is in need of a rest from all the grisly descriptions of hell. Virgil takes the occasion as a time to describe hell's layout and what the various circles and dishes signify in the greater scheme of things. The best way to visualise this account is to read the text when viewing a diagram as may be found in Dorothy Sayers' translation in Penguin Books on page 138. When in the dark wood, it will be remembered that Dante's progress on his spiritual journey was blocked by three beasts, a leopard, a lion and a she-wolf. These represented hell's three main divisions, incontinence, violence and fraudulent malice. To incontinence, Dante added unbelief, or lack of enlightening grace, that is limbo, as leading to the four circles representing lust, gluttony, hoarding, and the waste of our resources, and finally anger, making up a total of five circles. The circle of violence, as we shall see, 
described as having three divisions. Whilst fraudulent malice is divided into fraud simple and complex. For fraud simple, there are ten divisions, or as we shall see, ditches, malebolge, and these represent the city of the prince of this world. For fraud complex, there, there are four divisions. To all these we must add the vestibule of unwanted souls and the plain of heretics in their iron burning tombs which we have just passed through. This gives a grand total of three categories, ten main divisions and twenty-four smaller divisions, excluding Hell's vestibule of the unwanted souls, there are nine divisions in all. Note that in this canto, Dante gives us a concise resume of his view of sin. As we travel on, the abyss's funnel is ever narrower, the space is becoming more and more constricted with ever pace and step of our descent. This oppressive narrowing can signify but one thing, and that is we are gradually being led to encounter the Lucifer within us all, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of us all. The sins of fraud, malice, betrayal, lie at the bottom of the pit. In the Convivio, book four, um, I think it's line 14, Dante writes that everything is lovable in itself and naught is to be hated save for the evil superinduced upon it. In Psalm 5, it is written that God hates evildoers and destroys all those who speak falsehoods. Furthermore, the psalmist goes on, God cannot tolerate bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Therefore, Dante argues, since man alone is, a cap is capable of fraud, fraud lies in the lowest pit of the abyss, for fraud destroys relationship and relationship is the mystery of the Godhead itself in the mystery of the most holy trinity. Therefore Dante argues since man alone is capable of fraud, fraud lies at the lowest pit of the abyss for fraud destroys relationship. I'm sorry to repeat that. Malice and fraud lie at the root of the worst sins. They gnaw away at the conscience. They are instruments by which the prince of this world rules his city, the Kivitas Diaboli, both here and there. Fundamental to Dante's thought is the intention with which we relate to God, ourselves, our neighbours, and to nature, which takes, I quote, which takes her course from the sublime. Our responsibility is to, to, to each other and how we relate the intention which lies deep within our heart.
for example, violence may be directed towards God, our neighbor, ourself, even nature. And these sins would be shown in the following cantos. Virgil, the good of the intellect, has set out for Dante a scheme, a diagram, an overall view of the nature of sin. And in gratitude, he addresses his guide with the memorable words, O sol che sani ogni vista turbata, O sun that healeth every troubled understanding. Canto 11, verse 91. Canto 12, the violent against their neighbours. The violent are characterised by two essential images. First, the phlegeton, the fiery, a river of boiling blood. It is hell's third river. It flows round in a large ditch. It is an image of the fiery passions causing bloodshed through massacre, murder, rape, pillage. Here wallow perpetually the violent against their neighbours. The second image is those is of those beasts of antiquity which were half human and half animal. There is the Minotaur, which was born out of bestiality through the lust of Pasiphae, the wife of Minos, king of Crete, for a bull. He was the guardian of the labyrinth at Knossos. The beast was fed with the ransom of seven youths and seven maidens from Athens, and it will be remembered that the monster was eventually slain by Theseus. Here, the Minotaur blocks a rocky passageway leading to the Crimson River of the Violent. Virgil taunts the horrifying creature and through uncontrollable anger it is thrown into a convulsion, thus permitting the two companions to pass. The Minotaur, with its human body and bull's head, represents a psyche dominated by brutal passions. The centaurs, on the other hand, which torment the violent in the river of blood, have a horse's body and a human torso and head. They represent a mind dominating a beast's body. For example, the centaur Chiron, due to Greek heroes, and was famous for his skill in hunting, gymnastics, medicine, music and prophecy. Dante, correspondingly, makes him the most attractive of hell's inhabitants. The significance of the imagery is straightforward. The violent are tormented in a bloodbath forever. They never responded to their humanity, signified by the torso and head. 
Therefore, the centaurs shoot arrows at any soul which is brave enough to momentary surface for air and respite. The violent wallow in the blood they caused others to shed. Furthermore, Dante makes it perfectly clear that violence towards one's neighbour is caused by the loss of the good of the intellect to blind and beast-like passion. Three centaurs in particular play roles in the action. Charon, who represents here anger, Nessus, loss, lust, you remember his tale relates that he attempted to carry off Hercules' wife and was indirectly the cause of the hero's death, and Pholus, the will to dominate. The centaurs guide the companions to a ford and carry Dante across to the farther bank of the river. The symbolism is straightforward once more. The bestial passions may be overcome, transmuted, dominated, and turned to good use, and thus escape Phlegeton's bloody waters. The beginning of the canto, lines 31 to 48, Dante tells us that hell is a shattered realm, cracked, fissured, a ruin. Its defeat was when our Lord descended into hell, trampling down death by death. Remember once more that the poet is meditating on the Paschal Mysteries. When Christ descended into hell, he shattered sin and then thereby overcame death for all. The wood of the suicides and the profligates, Canto 13, now follows one of the Inferno's most harrowing sequences, the wood of the suicides. At first its imagery may seem cruel and hard to grasp until it is realised that for Dante the act of a self-pitying suicide is an act of violence against the body and our body is created in the image of God. The poets enter a pathless wood, harpies with their bodies of birds and pale faces of women stricken with hunger claw at the branches, shrieking with an ear-piercing intensity. They are the image of self-destruction, a will turned in on itself. Again note that the imagery is of the half-brute and the half-human. Dante hears a mournful wailing all about him as he moves through the sterile wood where there are no green shoots but only discoloured leaves. There is no sign of life in the trees 
No tender shoots, simply thorns, absence of fruit, only poison galls on withered bark. All about the friends is the continuous mournful wailing. Virgil sees Dante's perplexity and tells him to break off a twig from one of the brittle branches. Immediately the tree cries out, Per scanti. Why do you break me? 13, line 33. At the point at which Dante had snapped off the twig, dark blood appears instead of sap. Instead of sap with a hissing sound, so the blood eventually splutters words. There follows the pathetic conversation with the shade of Pierre de la Vigne, a poet of the Sicilian school, a poet still to be found in the anthologies of Italian verse. He was once the counsel of Frederick II of Sicily. De La Vigne fell from his master's grace and was unable to abide the humiliation and committed suicide. Dante, still perplexed by the surrounding bushes and trees, is still perplexed by the surrounding bushes and trees. And Virgil explains that when the suicides are judged by Minos after crossing the Acheron, their souls are flung down to this mournful place where the soul takes root and gradually grows into its ghastly, sterile shape. Having insulted the body, they are now denied it. Having refused life, they are caught in a dead, withered sterility. Self-hatred dries up the very sap of life's energy and makes existence totally infertile. A thought's just come into my mind that surely what Dante has at the back of his mind is, is, is the tree of life, that here has just become something completely sterile. Within the body we have the mystery of the tree of life and as you will see when we get to paradise Dante had a knowledge of the Christian tradition of the Kabbalah, which he puts to wonderful significance in the, um, various, in the various symbolism of the planets. Having, did I read that? Having insulted the body, they are now denied it. Having refused life, they are caught in a dead, withered sterility. Self-hatred dries up the very sap of life's energy and makes existence totally infertile. The poets then witness another horrific scene. Crashing through the wood come two souls of profligates pursued by a terrifying group of black bratches tearing their flesh like maddening greyhounds. Lano da Siena and Giacomo di Sant'Andrea 
represent those possessed by a depraved passion for dissipating their goods, for the sheer wanton lust of wreckage and disorder. Compulsive gamblers, fools, destroyers of reputation, social order, destruction of civilization are all signified here. And maybe it is here where Dante would have placed the soul of a person like Robert Maxwell. <laughs> Frightening thought. It's important to note, as I say, when you read the Divine Comedy, you must, as it were, reconstruct it in your own imagination um, to, to make it actual, as if it's happening all around you. It is important to note that as we descend on the paths and tracks of the abyss, that the imagery becomes more and more repulsive, intense, horrifying. The whole feel of hell is quite different to the imagery of purgatory or the thought of paradise. The fantasy of the fallen, fallen mind latches on to hell, and it is the most popular of the three great canticles for that reason. All this is within the poet's plan. He's sub subtly hinting at how the imagination falls into idolatry, valuing the object, the image more than the sentiment, the intellectual or the spiritual insight. In Martin Buber's thought, hell is a place of those who, caught by passion and indulgence, are unable to turn and make amends. Their will is weak, the good of the intellect lost. They are thrust onwards in the pursuit of grasping object. It is the sin of Goethe's Faust, who in his last speech says, I say to this fleeting moment, you are too beautiful, stay to make an object, to hold on to an idol of the present, is fatal. To hold on to the imagery of the commedia and to refuse to enter into dialogue or to move through the words to that which is truly signified and what the poet is attempting to communicate to his re reader is to fall into hell oneself and to become inhabitants of its realm. Dante is bringing into question what we consider a work of art to be. Is it it, or can it address us as thou, and enable us to enter into a relationship, and thereby grow? Canto 14. The first sin to be purged in purgatory is pride. In hell, no specific circle is assigned to pride, for all the sins, to a lesser or greater extent, involve pride and the delusions of the ego. Examples of pride become increasingly strident. For example, Farinata the heretic was sullen in this canto, 
on the burning sands where the flakes of fire fall on the blasphemer, blasphemers, that is, violence against God, we shall meet Capaneus, and later lower down the wholly perverse, such as Vanni Fucci. They reserved for next week. Furthermore, it may be added that the sinner is not fully conscious of his or her deluding fantasies, nor the extent of the vice of pride, for a sinful condition blinds the soul. The mind becomes, to use biblical terms, puffed up, and a self-justifying attitude makes us what the psalmist defines as stiff-necked. Dante teaches that, all, that wrong decisions entangle us more and more until the soul becomes sick and passion, which was once warm, becomes frozen in its deceits. On leaving the sterile ward of the suicides, the good companions come to what today we could call a scorched earth policy. All plant life is absent, as flakes of fire fall on great herds of naked spirits. Some lie on the burning earth as if defeated, others sit hunched up, contemptuous, while others roamed around ceaselessly, never resting. One cursed soul is that of Capaneus, a foolish soul who boasted whilst scaling the walls of Thebes during a battle that not even Jupiter could stop him. For his insolence he was struck down by a thunderbolt. Now he lies, rolls, squats, as defiant as ever. Qual io fui vivo, tal son morto. What I was when alive, I still am, he proudly shouts at the passers-by. Line 51. Now we come to a, a fascinating image in the Divine Comedy. The old man of Crete. On seeing a red bubbling stream, which reminds Dante of the Bulicame at Viterbo, used by the prostitutes of the town, conversations le leads to Virgil explaining the origin of Hell's rivers. There follows the allegory of the old man of Crete. It is an allegory of history and how the anger which ever lurks in the human breast causes suffering, and suffering causes tears. We have come across a concept that may be found in Italian poetic thought right up to the Romantic Age. It is that of the anger of mortals, l'ira dei mortali, as it is called in the libretto to Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor, tale of how unforgiving anger existing between two clans, the lowlands of Scotland, brings madness, murder, and untold suffering. Alas, we live in the veil of mortality's tears. 
Not only does anger cause the misery of violence, feuds and wars, nature herself haunts mortality with deformity and painful suffering. We weep. We weep over the bodies of loved ones. We cry out in pain. Tears flow from our eyes. Only the stiff upper lip of the English somehow attempts to repress tears. The tears of humanity flow, and as they flow, they drop on the earth and soak through its crust to form the rivers of the underworld. Hell is, in other words, irrigated by the laments of countless lives violated by evil. Here, surely, we cannot fail but think about our own times and what is happening all about us. Dante relates that on the Isle of Crete stands a monumental old man. His back is turned to Damietta, a town in the delta of the Nile, and looks towards Rome. His back is turned therefore on the old civilizations of the fertile crescent and he looks westwards towards Rome. His back is turned to the sun and he gazes at where civilization will ultimately decay and where the sun sets in the west. The old man has a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, one foot of iron, the other of clay. The imagery is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verses 32 onwards, and Metamorphoses, book 1, uh, 89 following. Here we have come across an imagery to be found in most civilizations, History degenerates from a golden to a silver age, from an age of brass to one of iron, which is, in the present age, as the Hindus call it, the Kali Yuga. Or, from the Christian point of view, the age of judgment. We await the parousia, the second coming. Presumably, the foot of iron represents secular government and the foot of clay, the Church of Rome, as a political, avaricious, devious enterprise. And as we stressed last week, Dante was aware, very much aware, of the ecclesiastical corruption of his times. And such corruption could only lead to crisis and judgment. It would not be long in time before Europe would be divided between the Protestant North and the Catholic South, followed by the rise of materialism. Canto 15, the Sodomites. Following a dike, Virgil and Dante crossed the burning sands. From this they observe groups of shades endlessly running, driven on by lives that have been damaged and corrupted by vice. 
Dante mentions sodomy, but perhaps, as Dorothy Sayers suggests, we ought to add alcoholism, drugs, even becoming a slave to nicotine. Vice traps us in a ceaseless wanting, an insane pursuit of more, more, more. The body is a temple of the spirit, and we are supremely responsible for it and the actions with which we involve it. The canto is of particular interest because Dante meets Brunetto Latini, who lived from about 1220 to 1294. Latini is to be found in comprehensive anthologies of Italian verse. He wrote an encyclopedia in French and is remembered in particular for his Tesoretto, an allegorical poem modelled after the Roman de la Rose. Like Dante, he had experienced being exiled from Florence. Villani described Latini as a great philosopher and a master of rhetoric who believed that the use of reason and the art of speaking well to be fundamental to a civilised society. Elsewhere, in Villani, he is described as being a, a neighbour of Dante's. Furthermore, that he did not care for the soul, as he was altogether worldly, worldly and that he sinned greatly in unnatural crime and scoffed much at the things of God and Holy Church. Latini runs along beneath Dante, who is on the dike, and tugs at his gown in order to catch his attention. Dante shows surprise and respect towards Latini, insisting that he had learnt much from him. Latini was a classicist and could have influenced Dante in the use of classical learning and especially the use of myth. He counsels Dante, this, these are lines 55 to 57, Se tu segui tua stella, non puoi fallire a glorioso porto, se ben m'accosti nella vita bella. Follow but thy star, thou canst not fail to win the glorious haven seeing how favoured thou hast been by heaven. Dante also shows Latini gratitude for what he has learnt from him. And once their conversation is brought to a close, he describes Latini running off, not as a loser, but as a winner. In conclusion, in this canto, sodomy is condemned but the handing on from generation to generation of cultured learning and love of the arts is praised. Canto 14, Cantos 14 and 15. The Rope Girdle. Very interesting episode. We have come to two cantos of transition. 
the good companions come to the edge of a profound precipice with the dark dyed waters of hell cascading down it. There follows an episode that has baffled interpreters across the centuries. Dante is told by Virgil to take off the rope girdle that he is wearing around his waist and throw it into the abyss. Let us read the text. It's, um, it's 16, 106 to 14. Io aveva una corda intorno cinta e con essa pensai alcuna volta prendere l'onza e la pelle dipinta poscia che l'ebbi tutto da me sciolta siccome il duca mi aveva comandato possila a lui aggrappata e ravolta ondei si volse in vero lo destro lato e alquanto di lunge della sponda la gittò giusto in quell'alto burato I was wearing a rope girdle, the same wherein I once, indeed, had nursed a fleeting hope to catch the leopard with painted skin. Now, at my guide's command, I loosened the rope, took it off, and held it out to him. All neatly wound up together and coiled up, he took it, and leaning right hand from the brim of the pit, he tossed it over the precipice so that it dropped well out from the rocky brim. Dante takes the action as a signal for something to happen. Virgil, as usual, reads his thoughts and tells him to wait. And soon shall come up what I look for and what your mind dreams of. A mysterious shape floats up amidst the thick murky air, so strange that, it, that even a steadfast heart would find it hard to bear. What are we to make of this sequence? I, I warn you, I take a very traditionalist point of view here. There is evidence that Dante, like his friend Giotto, the artist, was a Franciscan tertiary. That is, um, the third order of St. Francis is an order for, for the laity who lived under um, a simple rule of life. Dante had taken his religion seriously from the start. Maybe he had taken simple vows to remain chaste and catch the leopard, as he says. But the girdle with which he had girded himself had not proved to be an outward sign of purity. It was, in this sense, redundant. He had at last on the edge of the precipice caught himself out for the good of the intellect as an old fraud. 
good intentions and hastily made vows may easily be acts of ingenuous folly, for we hastily make them from ourselves and our own very limited selves, usually when we have not much experience of life. A wise spiritual master will never permit his spiritual child to have such haste. The spiritual life must be taken forwards, step by step by step, and at all times with great care. Saying he was a fraud in the sense of being a Franciscan. Pardon? Are you saying he was a fraud in the sense of being a Franciscan? He well, I mean, didn't mean to say he went round in a Franciscan habit, because the the the, the third order. Some did, like Jacopo di Natodi in his la, la, later life, but it was a it was an order for laity like you and me, you know, and you would draw up a. a, a a rule of life with your um, spiritual father, which you, you would uh, try to keep. And uh, as, you'll, as you'll see when you get to paradise, um, Franciscan poverty for Dante is one of the most important virtues. He saw St. Francis and the ideals of Francis as the great antidote against the corruption of the church. The Franciscanism of, of Dante becomes more and more clear as we um, get to the higher realms. Uh, you know, often in life you make great decisions of great ideals when you're young, and somehow they all fall about you. And somehow you repress it and try to forget it. But here, what Dante is saying, he had to face this fact. And what, what, once he's faced the fact, what comes up before him is an image of fraud. So he had to... Uh, hell is, Dante's hell is about discovering the hell within ourselves. So it's no good judging one's neighbour when one is, oneself is, has the potentiality for fraud within one. Do you, you follow Dante's argument. It, it's very, very perceptive. You'll find other people have different views of what this um, episode means, but I think this, from a spiritual point of view, it makes completely, um, complete sense. Well, I read my text, which we'll go through a little bit what we've just said. Dante's vow had been simply repression. And maybe the problems and stress it and stresses led him to the various causes that encouraged him to stray from the good and right way and ultimately end up in the dark wood of his passions, lost among the brambles. Virgil, the fine point of his soul, the good that was leading him back to Beatrice ordered him to get rid of the girdle, to hand it over to him. This he does, carefully winding and knotting the rope, so it, it is not a mess. I think that's also very, very important in the symbolism. 
but a bundle that can be easily handed over. This Virgil, again remember the good of the intellect, froze over into the abyss. And it's a signal that the neophyte has made a momentous step in his spiritual growth. What comes out of the pit is the image of fraud, the fraud that he now confesses to be within his own soul. Getting rid of the girdle was an act of great self-knowledge, honesty and liberation, enabling him to face himself by acknowledging his own foolishness. Know thyself. Only now is he able to descend and see the kivitas diaboli, the, the city of the devil, <coughs> of the prince of this world, for what it truly is, a diabolical enterprise run on fraud and malice towards one's neighbour. At this point, and Virgil turns to Dante and tells him, while he talks to this monster that's come out of the abyss, which we will talk about next week, his name is Gurion, incidentally, tells Dante to go and have a chat with a miserable lot of people not far away. While Virgil talks to the monster, Dante is instructed to walk a short distance and observe a group of souls so that he so either he may take away with him the full experience of the ring of violence. That's a quotation. He observes the ultimate condition of usury, which is a violence against nature and the art derived from nature. An art that scorns nature, Dante informs us, in Canto 11, sets its hope elsewhere, certainly not on the kingdom of God. And Dorothy Sayers rightly quotes the early commentator Gelli. Gelli brilliantly observes that the sodomites and usurers are classed together because the first makes sterile the natural instincts which result in fertility, while the second make fertile that which is by its nature sterile. In other words, they make money, breed money. And Dorothy says, with her usual insight, goes on to note, more generally, the usurers may be taken as all types of, e of all economic and mechanical civilizations which multiply material luxuries at the expense of vital necessities and have no roots in the earth or in humanity. The users flap their arms, attempting to keep cool in the intense heat. They weep, and their tears flow down into their money bags, hung around their necks, on which the emblems of their families are depicted. Today we would observe, no doubt, the black horse and other emblems of the banks whose usury is gradually destroying the globe and the environment as the forests are cut down, as nuclear energy plants leak more and more and more radioactive pollution 
creeps into the environment. So we too may well have the scorch, scorched earth of violence against nature. And genetic engineering, Dante's imagery is perennial and most apposite. <laughs>